Well, let's pray together before we jump into God's Word here. Um, God, through your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be with us all today, that you would open our eyes and our hearts, our minds, to a new depth of understanding of what Christmas means to us, what it, that we can see you, we can marvel at you, God, through Jesus. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, Jesus was an idiot, and I don't want anything to do with him. There was never such a person as Jesus. He's totally fictional, and I'm not going to have anything to do with a fairy tale. These are two statements you will likely never hear. Why? Because everybody likes Jesus. I mean, yeah, you know, everybody wants Jesus on their side of the argument. If we were uh, choosing up, let's uh, say, existential baseball teams, you know, and everybody's lined up out there, Hitler and Stalin would be the last guys picked, you know, standing there awkwardly, nobody wants us. Who wants Jeffrey Dahmer? You know, somebody's got to pick him, put him on Saddam Hussein's team, right? On the other hand, everybody clamors to get Jesus on their team. Everybody. When you look at the six billion people in the world, seven billion now, uh, the overwhelming majority are friendly to Jesus. But only some of them, and this includes a lot of people who call themselves Christians, uh, only some of them believe him to be God. Did you know that Muslims believe in Jesus? They do. In fact, he is one of their great prophets, but he is not God. Most Buddhists think Jesus was a highly enlightened, but human. Universalists, Unitarians embrace him as a great spiritual leader, but he is no more God than you or me. Many atheists see him as a great moral teacher who was badly misrepresented by his followers. But God, <clears throat> atheist. Hindus love him. Gandhi is thought to have said something like, I really hate your Christians, but I love your Christ. And Gandhi did not think he was God, however, and neither do other Hindus. While there is nothing close to a consensus uh, on the view of Jesus amongst Jews, there is a consensus on what they believe him to not be, God. Though there are major differences in doctrine, both Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses see Jesus Christ as a being who was created by a God, but a being entirely different than God. Then there's Baha'is, Christian scientists, Wiccans, Sikhs, neo-pagans, even many Satanists accept Jesus on one level or another, but none of them recognize Jesus as God. Yet in a twist that one might say only God could arrange for, in an almost literary-like paradox, evidence that Jesus' claim is true exists inside a prediction that critics would someday deny his claim. We read it in Psalm 118, verse 22, written a thousand years before Jesus was born by his ancestor, um, King David. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What's even more fascinating is that this psalm in particular, along with um, several others, are called halal psalms or praise. Halal is the Hebrew word for praise. It's where we get our English word hallelujah. And these half dozen or so psalms 
were sung at the end of, or during, at different times, during the Passover dinner. This is the time, of course, when Jews get together once a year to remember the Passover, the time that Jesus saved them, or God saved them, and drew them out of slavery. And interestingly, Psalm 118 in particular was always sung at the end of the Passover dinner. So consider this. On the night he was betrayed, the last thing Jesus sang with his apostles were the words, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And doubly fascinating is these words are still sung by Jews all around the world every year to this day. But what exactly does it mean to accept Jesus as a cornerstone? If you were here for our baptism service last week, you heard part of the answer. Christ followers accept Jesus as their Lord, leader, and their boss, and they accept his work on the cross, the forgiveness of sins, as the way into eternal life. Those are certainly cornerstones for the Christian, but there's more. Something more universal and even cosmic, if you will, about the cornerstone. You see, everything balances on the cornerstone. David in Psalm 118 is talking about the cornerstone of the universe. Matter, light, time, the past, the future, all that is and ever will be rests on the cornerstone. Jesus. Because Jesus and God are the same. Here is the sermon in one sentence. If you need to take a nap now and you're just going to check out, no problem. I'll give it to you right here in one sentence. Right? So just note this one. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. If you want to know God, just look at Jesus. He said it himself in several different ways. Here are three uh, very important ones. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am, John 8, 58. I and the Father are one, John 10, 30. <clears throat> the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me, John 12, 45. See, Jesus' followers understood him to be God in the flesh from the very earliest because that's what Jesus said about himself. And Paul, who later wrote most of the New Testament, believed it as well. In fact, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Colossae because he knew they were struggling with competing ideas of who Jesus was. And in the first few verses of this letter, he strikes at the heart of the matter with a passage that calls readers to marvel at God through Jesus. It reads like this. You can follow along if you'd like. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin at verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, excuse me, dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death 
to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Now, let's take a look at this passage verse by verse. And we'll draw out of this now things that we can know about God because we're looking at Jesus. Number one, he's a portrait. Portrait. The Son is the image of the invisible God. It's laid out here in the clearest possible terms, really. If you look at Jesus, you're seeing God. In other words, while there may be more to God than we can perceive in Jesus, God is nothing less and certainly nothing contradictory to Jesus. We're told that God is spirit, John 4.24. Paul says invisible. And so Jesus is the means through which we can see him. Now this is not uh, to say that Jesus is just a picture of God. It is to say that when we look at an accurate image, we are seeing the original. That everything which is revealed is accurate. Another way to say it, God cannot be less than or other than what is revealed in Jesus. Think about it for a minute, and you'll realize it's worthy of marveling. Everything that Paul is about to reveal about Jesus in this passage is the nature of God. So, next, he's prince. The firstborn over all creation. Now, mysterious language to be sure, but we can discern some important stuff. To be firstborn means several things, but I want to focus on one. The firstborn has the right of ownership and power over everything the Father has. The firstborn is the heir. If you are the firstborn of a farmer and the land and the cows and the manure pit, that's yours. If you're the firstborn of a banker, all the money in the vault, that's yours. And what do we read here about Jesus? What is his by right? What's his? All of creation, everything is his. That is marvelous. Every single one of the billion, trillion stars currently burning at 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit are his. Every single one of the planets that are circling those stars, discovered and undiscovered, any imaginable life form existing on any of those imaginable planets, his. While we're at it, your imagination, his. The molecules that make up your mind, that allow you to think and dream and love and curse and sin, are his property. Marvelous. Next, powerful. He is powerful. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. You see, ownership alone is only so marvelous. I often think about how ridiculous it is to admire a person because they have a really nice car or the latest whiz-bang bit of technology. I mean, it's kind of silly, right? I mean, they just own something. Now, granted, they may have skills that got them a job that earns them a lot of money that allows them to buy something like that. And, you know, there's something worth note there. But it's not like they built that car themselves or they made the new iPhone. I mean, that would be pretty marvelous if they did that, right? I mean, think about it this way. Who's more marvelous? The guy who can afford this $35,000 Rolex and he bought from a store, or the guy who made this watch, out of working watch out of wood by hand? 
Which one is more marvelous? When we look at Jesus, we not only see the rightful owner of every molecule in the universe, we see the one who imagined them, manufactured them, and deployed them to their places. From the carbon molecules that make up the cardiac cells in your heart, which will expand and contract 3,363,840,000 times without fail over your lifetime, to the same carbon molecules that currently exist in the deep in the crust of the earth in the form of a diamond, which has gone undiscovered for over a billion years. He made that. He made all of it. He thought it up. And he instigated all of it. Every molecule. You know, there's an old joke about uh, how a bunch of scientists got together and they're feeling pretty cocky about, you know, how things are going. We're, you know, we're, we're kind of killing it, we scientists, you know. I and mean, look what we can do. So they get a meeting with God and they say, you know, God, um, we don't really need you anymore. We've, we've pretty much got this surrounded. And God, wow, hey, good for you guys. Yeah, so, you know, appreciate everything you've done. Thanks for the rainbows, but we're, we're good. And uh, so God says, all right, well, um, how, about we, how about we have a little contest? Let's have a challenge. Let's have an atom making, A-D-A-M. Like, you know, I made the first atom. Let's see if we can do it again. All right, you make a man, I'll make a man. The scientists kind of consult. Yeah, yeah, we think we can do that. God says, all right, you go first. So the first scientist steps up and says, all right, well, first, all we do is we take a handful of dirt, and then we God, whoa, 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 get your own dirt. Right? All of it is his. Have, have you considered how marvelous it is that God, as revealed in Jesus, made everything out of nothing? He even made invisible things like love, ideas, dreams, instinct, and creativity. Gravity, inertia, the speed of light, the Pythagorean theorem, the laws of thermodynamics, sound waves, rhyming, color, buoyancy, displacement. All these things were discovered. They were not made by man. Last week we learned that even our consciences were made by God. And when we look at Jesus, when you look at Jesus, you're looking at the maker of all of that. It's marvelous. Next, he's provider. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's a school of theology called deism, which simply stated claims that there is a God, but he, she, it uh, is non-personal and disassociated with his creation. In, in other words, God poured all the ingredients into the universe, stirred it around and got it started, and then walked away and has never really looked back. This was essentially Albert Einstein's view, who said, quote, I believe in a God who reveals himself in the lawful harmony of the world, not in a God who concerns himself with the fate and the doings of mankind, unquote. It was the view of Thomas Paine and other founding fathers of the U.S., as well as, less famously, my own father, Thomas Hazen, who, after reading the Bible front to back, closed it and said, all right, there probably is a God, but I think he got everything started, and we screwed it up so bad, he said, fine, you sort it out, and he left. He's never looked back. That was Tom Hazen's view of the universe. But I think my dad missed the point of Colossians, or maybe he skipped it, because it's clear that when we look at Jesus, 
we see a God who is stewarding his creation. A God who is intimately engaged. Now, a good many of you know and live the impact of absentee fathers. He was there at your creation, but he has little or nothing to do with your growth, your upbringing, your training, or your protection. Having an absentee father is, uh, in fact, a defining circumstance, isn't it? You live every day, every day, with questions like, do I matter? Am I valuable? What's, what's wrong with me? Did I do something wrong? Am I fundamentally unlovable? This is the internal state of someone who was created and then abandoned. So then, think about this. How marvelous is it to look at Jesus and because he lives, you have the answer to every single one of those questions. How marvelous is that? You matter more than every sparrow and every lily in the field. Matthew chapter 10. You are so valuable that God bought and paid for you. He ransomed you. John chapter 3. There is nothing wrong with you in Christ. You have been made new and clean. Romans chapter 6. Whatever you may have done wrong, it has been wiped out, expunged, evaporated. Hebrews chapter 8. You are fundamentally lovable because you are a child of God. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 15 says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Oh dear fatherless one, you have not been left alone. Just look at Jesus and you will see your father. Next, he is premier. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. You see, he didn't get the job only because he inherited it. Jesus is in fact qualified to be God. See, based on what we've covered so far, it's possible to misunderstand that Jesus is equal to God based on his pedigree alone. He just got the job because he's the boss's son, right? But how many cowardly, inept, cruel, and ignorant rulers have humans suffered under only because it was their turn to sit on the throne? You know, just being born a king doesn't make you a good one. Likewise, someone who is simply powerful enough could take the throne. Jesus has the right to godhood by sheer virtue of his power to do it. But power alone can result in rulers like Castro, Assad, Stalin, Caesar, Herod, Pharaoh. No, there must be more than just pedigree and potency to make for a truly great king. And when we look at Jesus, we see it. It's experience. It's, it's his performance. It's his humanity. Because you know, it's the bosses who know how to work alongside us, who get their hands dirty 
Those are the ones we love, right? The bosses who get in there with us. It's the, it's the army officers who stay in the trenches with the enlisted men and fight that gain our respect and our loyalty and our obedience. Isn't it? It's the fact that he was first born among the dead. He is premier. He went first. He was born. He was disciplined by his parents. He was bullied on the dusty streets of Nazareth. He got sick. He got hungry. He died. He is qualified to be the God of the human race precisely because he was human. How how marvelous that he doesn't lay claim to the throne of your life based on just his ancestry or his power. I mean, could you imagine some pale, inbred, entitled little weakling demanding to rule your world based just on who his daddy is? Or could you imagine some ruthless bully who just happened to get his hands on all the guns, so now he's calling the shots? But we have the marvelous King Jesus, of whom the Bible says, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do. Hebrews 4. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2. In Galatians 4, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, his own law. Church, the courage that we should feel coursing through our veins the fervor that should overtake our hearts as we charge onto the battlefield, as we stand in the darkness of a crumbling and corrupted world, the hope of victory over evil and the security in knowing that in the end, our God will be victorious because He has fought beside us. He led the way. He has felt every pain we have, borne every kind of wound we have, and He has prevailed. That is our God who is premier. Next, he's perfect. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. Now, if there were any question about this left, later in chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul doubles down on the perfect transmission of Godhood to Jesus, when in verse 9, he repeats it with a slightly different emphasis. He says, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. When you look at Jesus, you are seeing perfectly every aspect of the Creator that a human could possibly comprehend. Now, this is an enhancement to the idea that Jesus is a portrait of God. We could easily buy into the idea that Jesus is a simple facsimile of God, just a photocopy, albeit a really good one. But containing the fullness of God underscores the admittedly mysterious doctrine that everything that is God was extended into the created world and we perceive God perfectly in Jesus Christ. That is is marvelous. That is worth marveling. Think about it this way. One teacher 
talked about it in this sense. Imagine a beautiful statue. Let's imagine the David, right? Michelangelo's David. Beautiful form, 14 feet high. Now imagine that it's wrapped in one of those heat shrink things, you know, that they can, they can throw it over there and, then, and, it, and it adheres perfectly to it, right? What are you actually looking at then if it's wrapped in one of those? What are you seeing? You're, you're seeing a wrapper. You're seeing an extension of what's beneath. It's perfectly shaped to it, but you're not actually seeing. In fact, the statue of David is invisible, isn't it? And Jesus, it's like, it's like God's hand moves through the wrapping of creation and the form that it takes is Jesus. Perfectly formed. Next. He's peacemaker. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now lest we forget the central purpose of God making Himself known in Christ was not just to show off. It was not to intimidate us, coerce us, or shame us. It was to save us. This is, this is truly marvelous, AC3. I want you to imagine Zeus or Thor or Allah squeezing all of their godly powers into a human form to save us from ourselves. Would they do that? Well, it's, it's unimaginable because those gods are not peacemakers. Peace does not even register in the value system of most gods. Other gods simply make unqualified demands of their creations and mercilessly dispose of the failures like a surly painter tosses away an imperfect canvas or an animal breeder puts down faulty offspring. And End of story. But the essence of God becoming human was an effort to restore relationship with His own creation. Marvel at the idea of the most gifted artist reducing himself to just a few strokes of paint for the sole purpose of preserving the painting. Next. He is personal. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, He has reconciled you. I want you to notice the pronouns in these verses. You. It's the second person plural. Meaning, first of all, the people to whom Paul was writing the letter. The Christians in Colossae. But it also means you who are reading the letter now. You see, I, I think it's, it's easy to conceive of God going through the, the whole Christian story uh, to save a planet, to save a, a, a culture or a race, but it's difficult to think that He would do it for me. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8 says, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christian, I'm talking to you now. Is it possible that we have grown calloused to this reality? You know, in evangelical circles for 150 years now, we toss around platitudes about how God loves us personally. He's our personal Savior. I, and I wonder if we've stopped hearing it. 
because we toss it around so flippantly. We're so steeped in a self-centered culture that contemplating the scandalous, outrageous reality that God died for you personally has lost its shock value. We should be thunderstruck at that idea. We don't really marvel at it like we ought to. In part, I think, look at horror movies. They've numbed us to the point that all the gore and torture and unspeakable violence, they just have to keep adding more and more. They have to run to keep up with our boredom with it. It's the same with pornography. Can the same be said for our capacity to grasp, as Paul says in Ephesians, how wide, how deep, how long, how, how wonderful is the love of Christ for us? Look to the cross, my friends. Know that you were on his mind. And then know that you have seen God. Finally, passionate. By Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. By his physical body through death. Unlike the deists that I spoke of earlier, we see in Christ a God who is intimately involved. A God who feels. In Christ, we see a touching God, a healing God, a singing, speaking, dancing, spitting, shouting God. A God who walked and ate and laughed and wept with His creation. Emmanuel, God with us. He is a physical God, a God with guts, and he put those guts, his whole body, on the line. We refer to Jesus' torture, crucifixion, and death as his passion. That word comes from the same root that we get the word suffer. When we feel compassion, we are literally suffering with. That's what passion means. And when we look at this list of God qualities here that we just went through, when we look at that list, we must admit that other kinds of gods could claim many of these same qualities and maybe actually share some of them. Certainly qualities like power and provider, perfection and the like. You're not much of a god if you don't claim to be perfect and powerful, are you? But it's this last quality. Passion. No other god seems to share this. And it makes sense when you think about it. These other gods, while perhaps having some spiritual truth in their origin, are nonetheless false gods. They've been invented and or propped up by men. And men, because of our fundamental arrogance and pride, could never conceive of a god who would suffer. I mean, be honest with yourself. If you sat down to invent a god, would that be the first thing you came up with? No. Ask your Muslim friend. They are outraged at the idea that God would suffer and die. Never mind the idea that he would sink so astoundingly low as to take human form. It's inconceivable. But here's the problem. Many Christians don't take Jesus' passion far enough. We limit it to the 72 hours leading up to his resurrection. That's the passion of the Christ. Well, I say, that we're off by about 33 years. I say his passion began at his birth. I say the passion began with Christmas. 
It's, it's unfathomable, the suffering that must have struck the self-existent creator and sustainer of the universe when he descended to humanity. A baby, no less, born to a starving, ignoble couple in almost complete anonymity. There are Christian sects and, of course, your self-important skeptic friends who love to point out that you know, Christmas is a fabrication, pagan origins co-opted by the imperial church, Jesus was born in the springtime, no biblical basis for celebrating his birth. Yeah, yeah, tell me something I don't know. Really, I've got the internet. Okay? We know this. And despite all that, are we not still supposed to marvel at a God who would choose something so utterly humiliating, so utterly loving, so utterly creative, unpredictable, so marvelous, so passionate as to be born, to live, to die a human being? Here his passion described 700 years before his birth in Isaiah chapter 9. Listen for the passion. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's the zeal of the Lord. It is, in fact, His passion. Let me introduce you to Calvin. This is Calvin. Consider it, AC3. Look at the child, and do you not see the image of his father? The son issues from the father. The child is the same substance. When you look at the child, you are seeing his father. It's marvelous. Isn't it marvelous? He inherits all that the father gives him. He possesses the quality, the essence of his father. You cannot see his father right now. He is invisible to you. Yet do you doubt that he exists after you have laid eyes on the sun? And I think about this miracle of God becoming man in substance, in essence, no different than Calvin. <laughs> have you considered it? That if you had been born in a different time and place, you might have held the Creator. You might have held Emmanuel, God with us. It's marvelous. Absolutely marvelous. Let's pray. God, thank you for Calvin. Thank you for Brandon and for Kari and for how the the very shape and structure and architecture of the family as you have made them reminds us of this wonder of father and son, mother, hope. God made the incarnation 
May the child Christ remind us of the Savior Christ this Christmas in a new way. For you are marvelous. We pray this in your name. Amen.